1: to Silverdale Baptist Church and Merry Christmas. It's so good to see all of you here today. I'm Tony Walliser. I'm one of the pastors here at Silverdale. And this is what I'd like to encourage you to do. Go and take your Bibles and open up in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 11. You can also take out your smartphone, open that app, 2 Samuel 11, um, we're also going to be looking at Psalm 51 as well today, but I also encourage you to take um, out these Bible study outlines that we provide for you. We give you these so you can follow along and take notes and maybe write down different things that God's speaking to your heart about. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called The Broken Tree, and what we've been doing is we've been investigating Jesus's family tree. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, before Matthew launches into the Christmas story, before he talks about the Mother Mary and the wise men and other things like that, the first thing that he tells you in the Gospel of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he highlights four couples, four individuals that went through a season of brokenness. And yet each of these individuals repented. They experienced God's amazing healing and restoration. And because of that, they eventually became part of the family tree of Jesus Christ. And the amazing truth is it's the same way with you. Every one of us, we go through those seasons of brokenness, but when we turn to the Lord in Christ, we are placed in the family tree of Christ and we experience restoration and healing. And that's what we're going to learn today. We're going to see this from the life of King David. Now, if if there's any descendant, you know, or, you know, you know, person that basically Jesus descended from, we know it's King David. In fact, that's how the Gospel of Matthew starts off. Look at it. Matthew 1.1 says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it lists all these different names and people. And then it comes down to verse six. Look what it says. And Jesse fathered King David. And David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And when we read that, we go, what? Whose wife? Uriah's wife? Now, we all know that, you know, Solomon is a descendant, the son of David. But did you know that his mom was Bathsheba? I mean, one of the most notorious sinful moments in history recorded for us is David and Bathsheba. I mean, it's a story of power, And drifting from God and lust and then adultery and then cover up and murder. And it's all right there in Jesus' family tree. But the good news about David is David doesn't just sin. David then repents of that sin and God blesses him and restores him. And that's why we're studying about him today. Now, most of us, when we think of King David, we think of two big events in his life. And they're connected with names. You've got David and Goliath. And that represents what? One of the greatest victories in David's life. And then you have David and Bathsheba. And that's one of David's greatest failures in his life. Now you may go, well, when did this actually happen, David and Bathsheba? What happened when David was about 50 years old? He was at the height and zenith of, of his reign as the ruler of Israel. Uh, I mean, basically, he had power, he had prestige, he had the adulation and praise of his people. God had blessed him on every side. I mean, he had conquered about all the kingdoms that were around him. I mean, it's incredible. And yet, he's about to throw it all away for a one-night stand. You go, how can that be? Well, it's a basic, simple principle. Just because you start your faith out strong doesn't mean you're going to finish strong. You can see that over and over again in the scriptures. That's why I love the Bible, because it tells you the truth. It shows you the good, the bad, and the ugly in people's life. And so here's David. You know, when he started off strong. He was a shepherd, had a heart for God. In fact, that's why he's described a man after God's own heart. And now he's drifted away, his heart is turned from the Lord. And you know, the same thing can happen to us. Just because you started off strong doesn't mean you'll finish strong, it's no guarantee. I mean, I can point to three ministers that were very influential in my young Christian life, and yet none of them are in the ministry today. Why? Because somewhere along the way, they made a sexual and moral choice, and they're out of the ministry. And so just because you start off strong doesn't mean you'll finish strong. And so what I want to do is we're going to study this about David, and we're going to answer, first of all, this question, how does a godly person fall? I mean, goodness gracious, how do the godly fall? Well, let me just give you this warning from the very beginning. If David can fall, so can you. If David is described as a man after God's own heart. He is passionate for the Lord. If he can fall into temptation, so can you. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament warns us of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul writes this. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Can I just tell you, Satan has a temptation for every stage and every age of your life. And maybe you did well in one stage or one age, but you know what, for whatever stage or age you are in, Satan's got a temptation for you. And so you just gotta be aware because if David could fall, we could all fall. And so what I want you to do is I want you to see this progression. It's a three step progression of David's fall. And I want you to jot it on the outline. First of all, number one, it started with a subtle drift. It started with a very subtle drift. It was a slow fade. It's not like David woke up one day and said, "Well, I'm gonna commit adultery and have somebody murdered. No, it was a very subtle thing that happened. You see, David had subtly and slowly started drifting away from God. And now he's sort of, I would call it in a spiritual fog. I've counseled many couples where one of the spouses committed adultery. And the wounded, hurting spouse will ask me almost always this question. Pastor Tony, can you explain to me Why? Why would he do this? Why would she do this? And I always say, look, my answer is not going to satisfy you. Because whenever a person gets to that point, they have been in such a spiritual fog of deception, it makes no sense. I mean, think about it. Logically, why in the world would somebody do something that's gonna dishonor God, break their marriage vows, possibly destroy their marriage, you know, financially bankrupt them, and screw up their kids? Why would anybody make that kind of decision, and yet people make that decision all the time? Why? Because they are in a spiritual fog of deception, and that's where David has been. He's been in this slow descent away from God. Notice what it says, how the passage starts off in verse 1 of um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants, but David remained at Jerusalem. In your outline circle, when kings go out to battle, you see, it's springtime, and this is normally when you got to go, and you got to defend your borders, you got to straighten things out, and so typically, a king would go, and he would be with his troops whenever that happens, but David's not doing that. David's sort of mailing it in. David is sending somebody else, you know? David's like, you know what? I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to play hooky. I'm going to play Fortnite, whatever it is. He's deciding, I'm just going to, you know, cash it in. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Now you may go, well, maybe he needed some R&R. No, he didn't need R&R. All winter long, he's been just lounging around the palace. Had plenty of time to relax. It's time to get up and start doing something. And David decides not to do that. You see, what's happened is, is that David has become spiritually lazy and physically lazy. Now, think back about David's life. When David was running from the former King Saul, and he was desperate for God, I mean, literally, he was crying out to God constantly. And if God didn't work one miracle after another miracle, he was not going to survive. In fact, many of the Psalms that are written were during that time when he was just running from Saul and so desperate for God. But you know what? David has now reigned for 20 years. He's big, fat, and happy. He's got plenty of power, plenty of money, and prestige. It's almost like, I don't need God anymore. And can I tell you, that's really what's wrong with our country. I mean, the fact is, is so many people are so prosperous in so many ways, you know, I don't need God anymore. I've got it handled. Well, that's where he is. And so David has become spiritually and now physically lazy. Check it out. Look how this is described. Verse 2. It says this. It happened... Late one afternoon, catch that, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Now, when was David getting up? Late afternoon, okay? Everybody else has been up since sunrise, right? Not David. He's lounging around. It's late afternoon. He's like, I guess I better get up. It's almost dinner time, right? What is going on here? David's just becoming this lazy bum. I mean, you've heard the expression before, idle hands are the devil's playground. It's true. When you got too much time on your hands, you know what's gonna happen? Your mind is gonna go where it shouldn't go. Your body's gonna do what it shouldn't do. In fact, here's a spiritual principle. I want you to jot down on your outline. Jot this down. When you are not actively seeking and doing God's will, you will passively do Satan's. Let me say that again. When you are not actively seeking and doing God's will, you will passively do Satan's. You see, whenever you just put your life in neutral, put your mind in neutral, you're always going to drift. And you never drift toward God. You always drift away from God. Well, that's what's happening here with David. David is drifting away from God. And what is he now doing? He is basically um, indulging his sexual appetites. We see this early on in 2nd um, Samuel. David becomes the king and once he's sort of his kingdom, look what he starts doing. Look at it. In 2nd Samuel 5:13, he says this. David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. David is indulging his sexual appetite. He sees this woman and goes, ooh, I think I'll um, have her as one of my wives. Sees this pretty girl over here and says, well, I think I'll add her to my harem. What's he doing? He is, he's not been living a disciplined life. I mean, this is all outside of God's will and it's this subtle drift that he has away from God. That's where it always starts. But then in the midst of this drift, he makes this impulsive choice. Jot that down. An impulsive choice, a decision. He's going to make a decision in the heat of the moment that's going to rock his world. Check it out. Look what it says in verse 2. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, in those few verses, you actually have the progression of what happens in our life that we move from temptation to sin. How does that happen? And it's the very same way in your life. We all follow the same four-step progression. So what is it? I've put it in descending order on your outline. First, it starts with temptation. Starts with a temptation, verse 2. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. In your outline, circle the word, saw. So there he is. David goes out to his balcony. He's looking over his kingdom in Jerusalem, and he's out there just looking around, and lo and behold, there's a woman who's naked and she's bathing. Now the first look is just natural. And it's the same way with you. Temptation's gonna come in different ways, and you can't avoid temptation. We will all be tempted. The first look was natural, but the second look and the third look, and the fourth look, and the fifth look was sin. That's what's happened. And so David moves from temptation to the second step, and that's consideration. He starts thinking about her. Check it out, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. In your outline, circle the word inquired. He's thinking about her. And so he's like, who is that girl? She's something, right? And so the messenger finds out who she is. And, and whenever David hears who she is, it should stop him in his tracks, but it doesn't look what it says. Verse three. And the one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? That's one of his mighty men that he's fought with. And the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, that's another one of David's mighty men. As soon as he heard the word wife, should have stopped and go whoop okay. okay she belongs to someone else I don't need to go there let me just pull these thoughts back I need to stop this right now but he doesn't and he goes this is Uriah the Hittite's wife I mean right then he's like wait wait this is one of the guys that have I've fought shoulders and shoulder with they've risked their life they've sacrificed so much they've been a faithful servant of mine I'm going golly I, there's no way I can violate one of these friends of mine doesn't stop David why he moves from consideration now he makes a decision look at it verse four so David sent messengers and took her father progression first he saw her then inquired about her and then what did he do he sent for her David made a decision now David hasn't you know lay with her yet but the deed's already done I mean, you know what? The, the thought process is already there. And so that naturally, once you decide, once you make a decision of your will, you're going to follow through with the action, which is the final step. Verse 4, and she came to him and he lay with her. And you're all in your island circle, lay with her. You know, God's word is always very precise. It doesn't say he made love to her. It Doesn't say there was, you know, no, no, it, it just, he just slept with her. No love, no connection, no intimacy, this was just sex. This was just a one-night stand to David. And so David commits adultery. He breaks one of the Ten Commandments. And he thinks, you know what? No harm, no foul. I'm going to go on with my life. She'll go on with her life, and that'll be the end of it, right? No, there's always consequences, which leads to the third thing. Jot this down. The premeditated cover-up. The premeditated cover-up. It's been said to err is human, and to cover it up is human, too. It is our natural tendency. As soon as we sin, we want to look for ways to cover it up. And here's the deal, though. Whenever you cover up your sin, it always makes it bigger. Always. I mean, this week, a president was, um, you know, impeached. When you think back in U.S. history, you think of President Nixon. I mean, he was about to be impeached, so he resigned. And do you know why he had to resign? It wasn't because of Watergate. It was because of the cover-up of Watergate. The cover-up made it worse. You have President Clinton. He was impeached. He was impeached not because he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. No, he tried to cover it up and he lied under oath to a grand jury. That's why he was impeached. You see, the cover-up always makes it worse. And so here's David thinking he's gotten away with his sin. He didn't. What happens next? Verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant, right? Now, can you imagine when that note came to David, and he read those three words, I am pregnant, I mean, David starts shaking like a leaf. He thought he got away with it, but he didn't. There's always consequences to our sin. And so, David, he's this brilliant strategist. His mind starts working. Okay, okay, I've got a problem here. How am I going to solve it? Oh, I got it i'll bring in uriah from the battlefield encourage him to be with his wife and everybody will think that the child is uriah's right and so that's what he does verse six so david sent word to joab send me uriah the hittite and so david brings uriah in you know what he says how's the battle you know gives him a bunch of glasses of wine gets him drunk says go home and be with your wife man you deserve it and uriah doesn't do it and david was like what Any hot-blooded man would go be with his wife. Uriah didn't. So he brings Uriah in and asks him why. Verse 11. Uriah says, my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you, king, live, I would not do such a thing. Yut, yo. David has just met a man of integrity. He's met a man that lives based on principle, not based on passion. In essence, the Word of God is making it clear to us, Uriah is a godlier man than David is at this point. And so, this should convict David. David should go, he should repent immediately. But he doesn't. He's got to come up with a plan, okay? This is my plan. Verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab, that's the general, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. His death sentence was being held in his own hand. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him and that he may be struck down and die. In your outline circle, struck down and die. You know what you call that? Premeditated murder. Power led to lust, which led to adultery, which led to cover up, which led to murder. What's the principle here? Jot this on your outline. When you try to hide your sin, it only creates more sin. When you try to hide your sin, it only creates more sin. Sin comes in bunches. And some of you right now, you're playing with fire. You're thinking you're getting away with it. And all it's doing is growing. And if you don't repent, you're going to ruin your testimony and ruin your marriage and bankrupt your finances and screw up your kids. Repent. That's what David should have done. He didn't. He thinks he's getting away with all this. He's not. God sees it. Look at the next verse, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Verse 27, she became David's wife and bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In your outline circle, displeased the Lord. He thinks nobody saw it, God saw it. You see, there's a God who dwells in heaven and he sees all and he knows all. You you can't go to a place dark enough that God doesn't see. You can't go to a place far away that God doesn't know. And guess what? God's predicted your sin will find you out. Some of you are right on the verge of getting caught. And can I tell you, that could probably be the best thing that ever happens to you. Listen to me. If you're really a child of God, God doesn't let you get away with your sin. He will expose you. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. Why? Because God loves you enough to let you stay in your sin. He'll expose you. That's what he's doing with David. And so that's the bad news. That's how the godly fall. And we can all follow in that same pattern. But you know what? Now, is you ready for some good news? How are the godly restored? How are the godly restored? We're going to look now in Psalm 51. You see, David, for two years, lived in this state of rebellion, just playing the hypocrite. You know, he, he gets married to Bathsheba. They have a child. I mean, you can imagine what kind of marriage that was. She's a grieving widow and married to the guy that caused it all. I mean, he thinks nobody knows, but the inner circle, the family and friends, they all really know. Now, now David has written over half of the Psalms. The book of Psalms is like the hymn book of the Bible. David's written over half of those. But during this season of time, David's writing no songs. Do you know why? Because he is a joyless man. He has no relationship with God. David later describes this season of his life as though his bones are broken and not healing. That's where David's at. And so what does God do? God sends a prophet, Nathan, to rebuke him. And Nathan confronts David and says, you are this kind of man. And David hears that and he's broken. I mean, golly, he is broken. He's repentant. He's crying out to God. And Psalm 51 is his song, is his prayer of confession to God. Notice the preface of it. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so here's David in Psalm 51. He's crying out to God. And from Psalm 51, you know what we get to learn? How do you get right when you've gone wrong? What do you do? How do you return back to God? What do you do whenever you made a decision that has stolen your marriage or stolen your sobriety or stolen your family or ruined your finances? How do you get back with God? We discover how in Psalm 51. And there's two very important principles we learn from this Psalm. And I want you to jot it down. First of all, number one, you must confess your sin to God. You must first confess your sin to God. You see, anytime you and I sin, we always have a choice. You can either justify it or you can repent of it. You can either cover it up or you can confess it. David, now that he's confronted with his sin, he's now confessing it to the Lord. Look at it. It's found in verse 1. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What's David doing? David's taking responsibility for his sin. David's not like a lot of the politicians that live in our world today. Whenever they're caught in something, caught in sin, what do they do? They put it on somebody else. Well, it's actually Bathsheba's fault. You know, she's the one that was out there naked in public view, golly, I'm the innocent victim in all this. David doesn't play that game with God. Five times in three verses, he says, it's mine. This is my sin, this is my iniquity, this is my transgression. I've discovered this in all my years as being a pastor that as long as you think that what you're doing isn't that bad, you'll never change. People often say, Pastor Tony, I wanna change, I wanna be different, I want God to change my life. Well, listen to me, as long as you think that what you're doing isn't really that bad, you're never gonna change. But whenever you understand that this is wrong, it is sin, it is evil, it's slapping God in the face every time you do it, then suddenly you have a different attitude. And so, here's David, he's not blaming anybody, he's taking full responsibility, this is my sin. You know, sometimes when we confess, we we just sort of minimize it, we go, you know, I made a mistake, made a little boo-boo, whoops, a little accident there, I got a little off track, you know, see I've got this small problem, I've got this condition, you know, I've got this tendency. No, it's sin. David goes, this is my sin this is my transgression. I have broke the law. This is my iniquity. This is the evil in my life. He understood this. And it's the same with you and I. I mean, the gravity of what David has done begins to pour into his heart. You go, well, like, like what? Well, he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his other wives. He sinned against the nation that he rules. But ultimately, He sins against Almighty God. God had blessed him and given him so much, and yet he's like, God, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I mean, David basically broke five of the Ten Commandments. God said, I'm to be first. David said, no, I'm going to be my own God. God said, I don't want you to have any idols in your life. David said, no, sex is going to be my idol. God says, I don't want you to covet what other people have. Don't covet after another guy's wife. No, I want her for myself. God says, don't commit adultery. This person belongs to somebody else. And David says, no, I want her for me. And then God says, don't murder. And you know what? What do we do? David says, well, I got to cover up my sin. I've got to have him murdered. You see, Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture. Why? Because David is absolutely broken. He's overwhelmed for his sin. He sees his sin for what it really is. It is wrong and it's evil and it's slapping God's face. See, David knows something, that God would be absolutely justified if he killed David right now and sent him to hell for all eternity. David is grasping this. I mean, and so should we. I mean, the wages of sin is death and hell. That's that's what we all deserve. And so what do we do? We, we, we play with sin and we pacify it and we go our own way and we ignore God's warnings and we live our life just for ourselves. And God, because he loves you, because you're his children, he disciplines you and he tries to correct you and maybe cause a little trial to come into your life. And what do we do? God, this ain't fair. You don't want God to be fair. Because listen, if God gave us what we deserve, we'd all be in hell. That's what is fair. What we need is the mercy of Almighty God. That's what David is crying for. And so here's David. He's overwhelmed with his sin. He's broken. He's confessing it. He's coming clean before God, and he's repenting of it. And then after he does that, he asks God to do something that only God can do. And it's this. Jot this on your outline. You ask God to cleanse you. You ask God to cleanse you. Now, now you've got to get the first one before you can do the second one. See, a lot of us, we bypass the repenting and the confessing and coming clean. We just want the cleansing and restoration. But you can't do that. Why? Because sin always leaves a stain. Sin always leaves the stench of death behind it. Several years back, I read a humorous story with this mom who's looking out her back, window the back toward the backyard and she sees her kids playing with these baby skunks that had snuck into her yard and she sees the danger that our kids are in and she lifts up the window yells out to them and says kids run kids run and what do the kids do they all grab a skunk and they run (laughs) you can imagine bath time was fun that night right well, that's what we do with sin. We don't think it's that big a deal, but it leaves the stench on us. And so what does David say? He's asking basically, God, will you please descend me? Would you please cleanse me? Look at it, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, Psalm 51, verse seven. He says what? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In your outline, circle that phrase, purge me with hyssop. I'm gonna ask Maddie to come up here at this time and have Maddie help me illustrate what's going on here because what David is referring to is something that they would do in the tabernacle of that day, okay? And so Maddie here is gonna represent a person in the Old Testament and for whatever reason, he became unclean. They had all these laws that would cause people to be unclean, okay? And so like if you touch a dead body, you would be ceremonially unclean. And what you have to do is you had to leave your family and friends and go outside of your community, okay? Because you're now separated. You don't want anybody else to become unclean because you're unclean. And so, and anybody that would come close to you, you had to warn them that you were unclean. So, Maddie, warn everybody. I'm unclean, unclean. Okay? All right. So, here's Maddie. He is now unclean. In fact, I shouldn't be touching you. There you go. He's unclean. All right? Now, he's got a problem, right? Because the only way to get ceremonially clean again is to offer a sacrifice, but he can't go to offer a sacrifice. So a friend has to go on his behalf, and what do they do? They go to the tabernacle and they offer an animal, and it is sacrifice for his uncleanness. And then after the sacrifice of that animal, then they burn that animal, and then they collect the ashes of that animal, and here are the sacrificial ashes, OK? And so this isn't actually animal sacrifice ashes this is my great edna and um and you know god bless her soul no i'm just kidding it's not okay so here you have the ashes okay so you got the sacrificed ashes and then they would add water to the ashes and then they would take hyssop a hyssop plant it grew wild there and um basically it's it's used in cleansing you know In fact, we have a native of that that grows wild here. It is a mint plant. That's in the family of the hyssop plant. And so they would take mint, which is sweet smelling. It's used as um, a cleanser. And what do they do? They would literally just move the hyssop plant around the ashes in the water. And then they would sprinkle the person who had been unclean. And now he is spiritually then clean. Say it, I'm clean. Amen. He's clean. All right. And so he can now join his family. Go ahead. Join your family. Give him a hand. All right. That's great. Thank you, Maddie. Now, are you connecting all the spiritual parallels that are there? We sin, and because of our sin, we become spiritually unclean. We are separated from a holy God. But I got good news for you. You got a friend. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has made a sacrifice on your behalf. And if you ask him to, he will come out to you where you're unclean and he will sprinkle you with his blood so that you will be clean. That's the picture here. In fact, whenever God cleanses us, he cleanses us like no other cleanser. David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Now that's an incredible image. I don't know about you, I love snow. And whenever it snows, it doesn't matter how ugly your yard is, it doesn't matter how ugly your neighborhood is, when it's all covered with a blanket of snow, it's beautiful, right? Because there's nothing wider than snow. In fact, if you've ever been skiing before, what do you gotta do? You gotta wear sunglasses. Why? Because snow is so bright, it is so white that you'll go snow blind. But can I tell you something? There is something that is wider than snow. Do you know what is wider than snow? A forgiven sinner. That person is whiter than snow. And that's what David is saying. God, will you wash me, cleanse me, make me whiter than snow? In the New Testament, it's written this way. Look at it. In 1 John 1, verse 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us, wash us from, look at it, all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. God washes us as white as snow. Now, you may be here and you go, God did that with David? Absolutely. God restored David, blessed David, took care of David. You go, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me David got away with it? David, just because he confessed a little prayer that basically, you know, David was forgiven and restored. I mean, the guy, he committed adultery, he committed murder. Well, yes. God does forgive all sins, but were there consequences? Most definitely. There were still consequences in David's life. If you know the rest of David's story, you know some of his consequences. You know that child born to he and Bathsheba, that child eventually died. We also know that there was turmoil within his family and his family starts falling apart. There's a civil war that takes place in the nation of Israel. And for the last 20 years of David's reign, it was a reign of turmoil. Now, God had forgiven him of all his sins, but there was still a ripple effect of consequences that David had to endure because of this sin. Now, I've used this illustration before, but just imagine, okay, that you are this block of wood, okay? Okay. And then you decide, I'm going to sin and do what I want to do. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And what do we do? We basically say, okay, God, here I am. I'm going to live for me. Do what I want to do. And that's how we live our lives. And that sin just sticks out, doesn't it? And Satan hangs all his dirty laundry on that sin and rebellion. But then we get broken. We confess our sins. We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you please forgive me? Will you please remove that sin? And guess what? God takes our sins and he casts it as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. That's the grace and forgiveness of God. But, right? There's still the scar. Right? There's always those still those scars that exist. Now, those scars can be a testimony of God's amazing grace, but sin always leaves some scars. So we're forgiven, but there are obviously consequences. So here's David, who God has forgiven. God is restored. He reigns the rest of his life as king in Israel. And then God does some amazing work of restoration. David and Bathsheba, they become very close. A good actual marriage. And she conceives again, but this time she birth to another son, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon, because one of the greatest kings in all the nation of Israel, I mean, he's one of the wisest men that's ever walked on this planet. And you go, wow, that is amazing grace. Yeah, but it even goes further. Solomon has a son who 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 has a son son. 25 generations after David and Bathsheba's sin 25 generations later you have this guy who's born and his name is Joseph and he marries this woman named Mary the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ and he becomes the father figure of our Lord Jesus Christ himself what do you call that? the grace and restoration of almighty God And if God can do that with David and Bathsheba, God can do it to you as well. I don't know what season of rebellion you may be in. I don't know the ways you may be drifting. But I'm telling you, our God is great and powerful and loving and merciful. And he will forgive failures like me and you if you'll just turn to him.
0: Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast.